0: story of how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at DavidPorson.org. This is Philippians Part 2 and Philemon. I want to draw your attention to a very unusual passage right in the middle of the book of Philippians. Uh, in most modern Bibles this passage is printed as poetry in short lines with gaps of paper between rather than in prose like a newspaper column. And it does look like a poem of six verses with three lines each. Even in English it reads poetically. It's, it's the most familiar passage in Philippians and it's so often read exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You've heard that so often, but it's a passage that has been a source of great controversy and a lot of discussion. And the biggest question, of course, is why is it in here and why is it different from the rest? It's got a a double theme which is very clear – emptied, exalted, down, up. It's got a beautiful balance, the poem, about Jesus coming all the way down to the cross and then going all the way up to the very top, his emptying himself and God exalting him. But having said that, what's it doing in here and, and what is it really? Some people treat this passage as a liturgical passage. Uh, Paul is quoting a hymn, they say, which the early church used to sing. It just came in useful to him. Well, we have no evidence for that. It may even be that Paul is composing a hymn here. But when something touched Paul's heart deeply, he often lapsed into poetry and the Hebrew thought in poetic terms when his heart was moved. And all through the Bible, prose, is to communicate God's thoughts to you but poetry is to communicate feelings to you and we still use poetry for that purpose. There'll be a lot of poems flying around on February the 14th, St Valentine's Day, and uh, why do people express their thoughts in poetry on such days or why are birthday cards full of poems? It's because you want to communicate heart to heart and Paul, when he really had something on his heart, became poetical. 1 Corinthians 13 is poetic. Well, it may be a hymn he's quoting, or maybe may be a hymn he composed himself, or it may be that he's just touched in his heart about this. But the biggest controversy about this passage is treating it as a theological passage, as if it's discussing the nature of the person of Christ. And from this passage has come a whole discussion about what is called the kenotic theory of Christ. I have to mention it because I'm afraid all the commentaries do and all the Bible teachers mention it. That word comes from one word in this poem, the word emptied, which in Greek is kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. He emptied himself. And the scholars then debate how much of God did he empty himself of when he became a man? What did he let go? And from it then comes a very dangerous theological assumption that Jesus was not a hundred percent God when he was on earth, that he emptied himself of part of his divinity in order to become a man. Well it's certainly obvious that he left his glory behind. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. You sing it at Christmas. But um, he also left his omnipresence behind. He could no longer be everywhere. Now that Jesus is in a body, he can only be in one place at once. That was certainly a limitation. It's also clear that he did not now know everything He confessed that there were some things he didn't know. He didn't know the date of his return, only God knew that. He was sometimes surprised, which means that he didn't know what was going to happen and God does know. He left behind his omnipotence because he could only do miracles after the power of the Holy Spirit came on him. He didn't do miracles as the Son of God but as the Son of Man, baptised in the Holy Ghost which gives us the hope of doing those things as well, which we couldn't do if if he did them as the Son of God. So there's no doubt about it that he did empty himself of many of his privileges and his powers. But the key here is this, he did not therefore in any sense cease to be God. He didn't become 50% God or 75% God. He wasn't fifty percent divine and fifty percent human, as some people have misunderstood. He remained one hundred percent divine and one hundred percent human. He was fully both. The things he gave up were not of his nature but of his privileges. you understand what I'm saying? That's where many people have gone wrong in discussing this passage but it has, I'm afraid, led many theologians to talk about Christ being less than God when he was on earth. No, the fullness of the Godhead still dwelt in him bodily, even though he laid aside his privileges. If I gave up the house we live in and the car I drive and a lot of other privileges that I have, that doesn't mean I've ceased to be me. I've chosen to give up my privileges. Do you follow me? I am still 100% David Borson. And though he emptied himself of his equality with God, he did not empty himself of God. Do you? He emptied himself of his position and his privileges, but he didn't empty himself of his divinity, his Godhead. I just mention that because this passage has caused a lot of damage by being interpreted in that other way. It's been very popular around the church actually this whole passage is neither liturgical to be treated as a hymn nor theological to be treated as a theological principle. It is an ethical passage, a moral passage. It is about Christ's attitudes and his choices. You can tell a man's character from his choices. If you hand a person a whole different lot of cakes, you can immediately tell something about the person from which cake they choose. My grandfather had a reputation that whenever he was handed a plate of fruit and there was one bruised or rotten, he always took that one, always. And when somebody asked him why he always took the rotten one, he simply said, because if I didn't, somebody else would get it. Now I heard that about my granddad. That tells me something about his character, doesn't it? Doesn't it tell you something? Do you always take the rotten one? Do you see what I mean? And a man's choices tell you what kind of a person he is and Paul is here saying, look at the choices that Jesus made. His first choice was to become a man. Now you know, I used to talk to children like this and say, look at those tropical fish in that tank. Supposing you saw them fighting and killing each other and you knew that you could save them if you became a fish and went to live in the tank, knowing that they would probably kill you. But don't worry, we would lift you out of the tank or lift your body out of the tank and give you the kiss of life and bring you back to life after you'd done all that for them. But there was only one thing. We couldn't uh, bring you back to where you were. You'd have to stay a fish for the rest of your life. Okay, it's a silly way of saying it, but you know, when you consider that he was equal with God and all the glory in heaven as the Son of God, and he chose to be a man, knowing that he'd be killed for coming here to try and help us, and knowing that even after God raised him from the dead, he would have to remain a man for the rest of eternity and is still like one of us and always will be. One person of the Trinity will always be a human being like us. What a choice! Would you do it? But he did it. And his second choice was when he was born, what sort of level of society would you choose? Supposing you could have chosen your parents, supposing you could have chosen the house you'd be born in and the level of society where you'd be born. Where would you choose? Well we know the answer. Most people choose the best house they can afford a mortgage for. Yet he chose to be a slave, he chose to put himself at the bottom of society and to wash feet. And then his biggest choice was at the age of 33, he chose to die and a horrible, humiliating, painful death, the worst that's ever been devised for human beings crucifixion which took from 2 to 7 days normally and he chose to die at 33. Now that's the kind of mind Christ had, not the kind of brain he had, the kind of mind he had. The word means as we say, have a good mind to, you know, it means the bent of your character, what you want to do. And these choices, says Paul, fitted him perfectly to be given authority And power because God looks for people he can trust with power and authority and he can only trust those who have no interest in their own power or status or wealth. And because his son chose to be poor though he was rich so that others might become rich and because he chose to die when others would have chosen to live and because he chose to be a man like everybody else, God said, I can trust this person with all authority in heaven and on earth. Wherefore God exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, see? Because he could trust it with the control of the universe because he would never have any self-interest. Now that's the meaning of this passage. And if you look at the context, the context is rather than each of you looking after his own interests, each of you trying to be the leader, each of you wanting to be at the top, have this mind in you which you also have in Christ Jesus who made this kind of choice to go down instead of trying to go up and then God can trust you with authority. Now that's what it's all about. It's not about theology, it's not about liturgy and hymn singing. This little poem is about ethics – It's about unity, essentially. Paul is saying, if you've got the mind of Christ, you will have unity in your fellowship. And he also tells them why they must have unity. He says, I long to hear that you stand fast together for the sake of the gospel. Disunity in the church is the quickest way to stop that church's influence on society. But unity within the church is the strongest demonstration of the one God, the one Christ. So he says, have this mind in you. Now he's not saying imitate Christ. He says, have this mind among you which you already have in Christ. He's not saying this was the mind of Christ, therefore try and be like Christ. He's saying you've already got the mind of Christ if you're in Christ, therefore let that mind of Christ be expressed in your relationships with each other. It's a deeper thing than just saying, imitate his outlook or his attitude. It's saying, you already have his mind, but you're not letting his mind control your relationships. Have this mind between you that you already have in him. It's a profound appeal and immediately it's followed by, so work out your salvation, for God has worked it in. And it's a tremendous appeal. So we come to the major teaching bit of the uh, letter to the Philippians, and I've just tried to give it a little outline uh, to pick out the major points. From the beginning of chapter 3 onwards, well no, from immediately after that poem about Jesus, he then tells them how to work it out in practice. Let me just run very quickly through it. First he says, you have an experience to apply. You have experienced this in Christ his death, resurrection and exaltation you've experienced. Therefore God has worked it in, you work it out. If you've had an experience of Christ, then now work it out. Secondly, we work this out by seeking righteousness, but there are two kinds of righteousness. One is your own and the other is his. You know, the thing that most people find so difficult to understand is that we must repent of our good deeds as well as our bad deeds. Most people think repentance is just repenting of the bad things you've done. It isn't. It's repenting of the good things you've done if they made you feel better. See? What a good boy am I. That's why it's much easier to convert outright sinners than religious and respectable people. They're not bad enough, and they won't repent of their goodness. But Paul says, When I consider my righteousness, and here it comes, it's very blunt. He says, I feel like a child who's just emptied his bowels and is holding up the potty and saying, look what I've done, God. He uses a pretty down-to-earth word in the Greek. In Anglo-Saxon he says, it's shit to God. When I consider the good things I've done, that's what it's like to God. And I throw it all away. I count it, but dung. He uses the word for human excreta in Greek he said, that's what it is, it stinks, it's filthy, even my good deeds. He said, the righteousness I want is his, not mine. So there's a huge difference between the righteousness of people of their own good deeds and having the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness. So there's a righteousness, an end to pursue, not ours, which usually is based on our birth and our life and our background and upbringing, but his which is based on dying and rising, sharing his sufferings and sharing his resurrection. That's what makes for righteousness of his in you, dying to self and rising to newness of life. Then there's a responsibility, an effort to make. And there's a lot of effort in the Christian life. It's not just, you know, singing choruses at the bus stop till the bus comes to take you to heaven. It's It's making every effort after holiness, forgetting the things that are behind, forgetting your failures and your successes, forgetting all that and keeping your eyes fixed ahead and pressing on toward the goal for higher ground as you've just been singing. Pressing on. And Paul says, I don't feel I've arrived yet, but I am pressing on. Now that's the right attitude. That's the effort to make, to go on until you apprehend that for which you've been apprehended until you get hold of what God got your hold of for. So there's an effort to make, forgetting the past and forging ahead to the future. Then one of the best things in that is to have models to follow. I've got a, a row of books on holiness on my shelves, but I tell you, I've not learned about holiness from those books, but from people. I know who've walked with the Lord. I've learned far more from looking at other people than reading all the books on my shelf. And I think most of you could think of somebody in your life, a grandparent or a friend or somebody you've known who was a holy person, who really was Christ-like, and you say, I want to be like that. And they don't lecture to you just by being with them. You feel you want to be better. Do you know what I mean? And of course, supremely with Jesus, that's how you feel. He doesn't need to say anything. You just say, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, depart from me. But he said, watch it that you use an example to follow, not of a bad earthly-minded person, but of a good heavenly-minded person. He said, there are both in the church. There are those whose God is their belly, who dig their grave with a knife and fork. Don't follow them follow someone who's set his mind on the things above. See, the models you choose, the people you want to be like, they are so influential in your life and he urges them, choose the right people to follow. Choose the right ones to model yourself, choose the right ones to say, I want to be like that person. And finally, there's an event to desire and Paul says, I press on, I share his sufferings and his resurrection. Why? What's it all for? He says, that I might attain the resurrection out from the dead. In fact, he uses the word out twice in that. The literal Greek says, that I may attain the out-resurrection out from the dead. And the book of Revelation explains that because it says there will be two resurrections at the end of history and the first is the resurrection of the righteous and the second is the resurrection of everybody else for judgment and there's quite a long time between the two. The first one is the resurrection out from among the dead, the second is the resurrection of the rest of the dead. And he says, I want to be in the first resurrection. That's what my goal is my goal is to be raised from the dead when Jesus gets back. And you notice that that's a goal he's still working for. He's still going for. He isn't saying, I'm bound to have that because I've got my ticket to heaven. No, he says, I'm pressing on because I want to be in that first resurrection. Once again, there is the negative side, that little warning. You could miss that, and then you're just resurrected with the rest for judgment. We press on for that resurrection out from among the dead and that's what our goal is to be. So that's a practical application of it. Well, I must finish Philippians because we've got to look at Philemon. There's just one final thing I want to say. What we're really saying is, you see, that so many of the promises of Scripture are conditional on us working at it that's not a popular thing to say. We love to claim the promises. I don't know if you remember those little chocolate boxes full of rolled up promises with a pair of tweezers, did you ever see one of those? And every day you pull out a little slip of paper and unfold it and it gives you a promise to live by that day. Invariably the promise is taken without the conditions attached to it. For example, here's a promise, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Beautiful promise. Well, there's a condition attached to that promise. The promise is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them and teaching them, and lo, I am with you always. People want the lo without the go, therefore they miss the glow. <laughs> if I'm willing to go and make disciples of all nations, then that promise holds, lo, I am with you always. And many times in my ministry when somebody tells me they've lost the sense of the presence of the Lord with them, I say, then go and convert somebody else. Go and win someone else for the Lord and your recovery will be immediate of the sense of the presence of the Lord with you because the promise of his presence is conditioned by you going to make disciples. Go and lo. Well, there's a promise here that the peace of Christ will guard our hearts and minds. A beautiful promise. At the end of this lovely letter he says, The peace of God keep you, the peace that passes understanding. May that you'll have peace. God will guard your heart and mind with peace. But there's a condition, and the condition is that you control your thoughts and that you only think about things that are honest and good and pure and true. You control your thoughts and the peace of God will guard your mind. Do you get it? so important that we don't try and claim the promises without working it out, without applying it, without doing our bit to make sure that promise applies. And all the way through the New Testament, you can concentrate so much on the promises that you forget, that constantly we're told how to make them work how we respond to that promise. So he says, think on these things, keep on thinking about things that are good and true and honest, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind and there'll be an inward harmony in you that nothing can disturb. People say, how can they be so peaceful in those circumstances? That's because the mind has been controlled. Well let's move on to Philemon. It's a little letter, so we don't need to spend too much time at it, but uh, it's a lovely little letter. It's only one page in the New Testament. You know, the letters of Paul unfortunately have been arranged badly. They've been arranged on the same principle as the prophets in the Old Testament. The principle was, the longer the book, the earlier the place it gets in the Bible, which is a crazy way of arranging it, isn't it? So the letters of Paul are arranged in two blocks his letters to churches and his letters to individuals and within those two blocks the longest comes first and the shortest comes last. So you get them all out of the wrong order. We've been studying in in the right order, you see? Thessalonians were the first and the next session will be on the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, which were the last. And we should read them in order and study them in order, but unfortunately someone put Romans first among the letters to the churches because it was big and the last little ones are Thessalonians, and then the personal letters to individuals. Little Philemon comes last of all because it's so small, but it's a very important little letter. It's the shortest letter, yes, and it's the only one that is purely about one individual, a runaway slave, and it's a bit of private correspondence. So we have to ask two questions. Number one, why was it written? The answers are that's fairly obvious. The second question is, why has God put it in the Bible if it's a private letter about one individual? So we've got two questions to occupy us. But it is unfortunate that the little books of the New Testament tend to be ignored and neglected. We're going to study Jude later. There's a neglected book. But it's only one page. And here this one page letter written on one sheet of papyrus, a little note we might say, from Paul to Philemon. Well the story behind the letter is quite simple, it's a a personal drama. Here's a slave who is not a very good slave, sullen, lazy, rebellious, resentful, and eventually he decides to run away. And a slave who ran away must go somewhere he can hide and the obvious place was to go into the big city, and the bigger the city the more he could hide. Runaway teenagers today make for London. If you want to hide, you make for the big city. And so this slave made his way to Rome, little dreaming what would happen. I don't know how, but he met a man chained to a Roman soldier called Paul. That's fatal <laughs> and it really did seal his fate. Now in those days, a runaway slave, the normal punishment was crucifixion. But if his master was particularly kind, He would take a branding iron with the letter F and brand him on the forehead with the letter F, fugitivus, or fugitive. And he would have to wear that brand forever afterwards, which would, of course, get him into a lot of trouble. That was the kindest, the best he could hope for if he was caught. The worst would be crucifixion. And here he meets up with Paul and he becomes a Christian. And he came to Rome hoping to hide. And Paul said, you've got to go back to your Master, you know. Now this is very interesting. You see, many people think that when you convert and become a new creature in Christ, you can run away from your past. No, you can go and put your past right now. Now far too many think that when you come to Christ, you forget everything in the past. But you can't do that you are called now to put the past right if you can. That's a very important point of repentance. Repentance involves restitution, putting the past right. You can't go to the Halifax Building Society and say, hey, the person who took out that mortgage is dead. He's been crucified with Christ and Christ has paid all his debts at Calvary and I'm free, I'm a new creature. You can't do that nor can you run away from a marriage or a divorce because you've become a Christian. You are a new creature, but now you can handle those commitments properly and put them right. Zacchaeus, remember when Zacchaeus, he didn't say to Christ, oh Jesus, I'm a changed man, from now on I won't defraud anybody, I'll keep my finance right from now on. He didn't say that. What he said was, I'm going to pay back everybody I've defrauded with interest so that nobody loses by me. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus didn't run away from the past. He faced it properly and put it right. I've known a man who, as soon as he was converted, went and confessed to a crime to the police that had never been discovered and he got the lightest sentence from the judge because he'd confessed. He got two months in jail and when he got into jail the prisoner said, what are you in for? And he said, such and such. How did they find out you did it? Oh, I went and told them. You what? He went and told yeah. What on earth did you tell them for? Well, I've become a Christian. And you know he began to lead other prisoners to Christ, but when his two months was up he had to leave his converts. So he went to the police station, confessed another crime that he'd committed and got back in. And paid, and paid for that crime and followed up his disciples. And you know what he said to me? He said, I'm the only evangelist in Great Britain, entirely financed by Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> See? But he was, he was putting the past right. He wasn't running away from the past, and repentance involves putting it right, not running away from it. And Paul said, you realise, Onesimus, for that was his name, I've got to send you back, but by an amazing coincidence, God must have had His hand on this. Actually, his master, his owner, was a Christian at Colossae, and he said, "I'll send you back with a letter to him, and I'll explain everything." And he writes this beautiful letter. Now, there's a pun in the letter which opens the whole letter up. The pun is this: Onesimus is named. Do you know what it means? It means useful. That was the name his master had given him. Come here, useful. But he said, Paul says, you may have found him useless in the past, but I'm sending back a useful slave to you. The lovely play on his name. And he said, I'm not just sending him back useful to you now, I'm sending him back as a brother. And he says, that money he stole from you, I'll repay it and I signed this with my own hand. He sent him back. Now you could look at this story from many angles, the personal angle. Mind you, Paul lays on the appeal a bit thick. He says, I'm an old man and a prisoner, so, you know. I mean, he really lays it on thick and he has a kind of sob story in there. It's, It's a very human document. And Philemon, a church was meeting in his house and his wife was involved and his son. And Paul said, it's going to be hard for all three of us. It's hard for me to let him go, I've come to value him. It's hard for him to come back and it'll be hard for you to accept him and forgive him. But he said, let's all do the hard thing and he did it. Well the personal story, it's a letter full of affection, full of personal interest. You can study it from a social angle, from the question of slavery. Paul didn't try to abolish slavery, he just broke it up from the inside by changing the relationships and the attitudes. This man is a brother now, he's not a piece of property any longer. He's a dear brother in the Lord and it was that that over the centuries would eventually break slavery, treating human beings as brothers. There are two ways you can deal with the social evil. You can either use force and crack it or you can break it with love from the inside. And Paul chose that second way. I haven't time to say more, but those who say Paul condone slavery are absolutely wrong. In the first letter to Timothy, Paul lists those whom God could never accept in heaven and he says, murderers of parents, children who murder their parents, and then he says, slave traders. So don't believe those who say the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery. Paul does, but he deals with it in a different way. But there's a spiritual side to this letter that I want to look at finally. Why is it in our Bible? It's a perfect picture of our salvation because you are that slave. You ran away from God. You were no use to God. And somebody came and paid your debts and presented you back to God as a useful servant again. And Jesus did that for you. And in this little incident, you have a perfect picture of your salvation. You ran away from God you were no use to God and yet Jesus stopped you and he changed you and he sent you back to God to present you a useful servant. It's all there, it's a mini thing, but ultimately there's an ethical aspect to this letter and it's this. Paul is simply doing for that slave what Jesus had done for him. See? And the whole message of the letter is this, what Jesus has done for you, you now do for others. Jesus paid for you and rescued you and recycled you and sent you back to serve the Father. Then now you go and do that to others. In other words, our relationships to others are conditioned by what Christ has done for us. Do you follow me? You go and recycle people and send them back to the Father. You be willing to pay the price for them as Christ paid the price for you. Paul is showing here that his personal salvation in Christ became the way he lived, that all that Christ did for him, he now did for others. It's a beautiful example of working out your salvation. Dear Philemon, I'm sending him back to you. Old useful. You'll find him really useful now. That's what Jesus is saying to the Father about you. You'll find him useful, Father, now. You'll find her useful again. I'm sending her back to you. Totally different. A member of the family now. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidporson.org.